Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for your participation in this ministry. We're soon approaching the fall holidays with trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. And as many of you know, Lion and Lamb Ministries hosts one of the largest Feast of Tabernacles here in Oklahoma. It'll be in October this year. And we want to invite you, I personally want to invite you to come join us in the camp and celebrate the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles and the Camp of the Righteous. Um, this has been an incredible year, 2020. Uh, many things have been happening. Many ominous things have been happening. It appears that what's going on is part of what the Messiah talked about, the beginning of sorrows, about the birth pangs that lead up to the Great Tribulation and the coming of the Lord. And Tabernacles has an incredible prophetic message to it that has to do with how God will be delivering his people in the Great Tribulation, the Greater Exodus. And by going and practicing at the Feast of Tabernacles, we learn how the Lord is going to be delivering us in those days. This is not a year that you should be thinking about missing the Feast of Tabernacles. You need to come. This year, we have some excellent teachers coming. They're paying close attention to what's going on in the world today, and they have many words of encouragement for you when you come to the feast. So I encourage you, get your registration in to line a lamb to tabernaclesevent.com. Uh, Sign up for Sukkot, get your initial things in, get registered, get into the camp, and we will come and have a time, a feast of rejoicing before the Lord. And I want to encourage you personally this year, 2020, please, you need to come to camp this year and hear what the teachers have to share with you. So shalom to all of you. And as soon as you finish seeing this, go over there and get registered and join us for the Feast of Tabernacles. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and welcome again to our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We are now at chapter 17, and if you would, join me there. And six days later, Yeshua took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. Now, wait a minute, let's look at that introductory phrase, and it was six days later. Later than what? What had happened back six days earlier that this is going to be connected with? Well, if you go back, it would, they were at Caesarea Philippi, and this was when it was explained that he was the Messiah, and that, they, that the Father had shown them that he was the Messiah, They've been, of course, instructed, don't tell anybody about it yet. There's still things yet to take place. So six days later, they are out uh, this other place on a high mountain. Well, let me tell you physically where they went. They went from Caesarea Philippi, which is way up on the north edge of the um, 
Sea of Galilee, um, and um, which is called Banyas today. And they came down along the western side of the Galilee, and they came and they were approaching the valley of Jezreel, this va large valley in northern Israel that extends from Haifa all the way across to the Jordan River. It's where a lot of agriculture takes place in this big valley. It's also called, on the southern edge, is called Armageddon. Armageddon is on the southern edge of that valley, but on the northern edge of that valley is a mountain called Mount Tavor. Mount Tavor is where they've gone to. They've gone on the, the same valley as Armageddon, but they're on the north side of it. So he goes up, and remember now, they just got through dealing with the great confession that Yeshua is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. So they go up to this mountain, and verse 2, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. They're seeing three figures, Yeshua in the middle, here's Moses, here's Elijah, that literally the law and the prophets, you know, that's what they symbolize, they're talking to the Messiah. Now, it doesn't tell us what they said amongst themselves. It's really recording for us as to how the disciples saw this, how Peter, James, and John were viewing this. So he goes on to say, and, and behold, most Elijah appeared to him, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is a good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, let's get something straight. That wasn't God from heaven saying, don't listen to the teaching of Moses anymore. Don't listen to the testimony of Elijah anymore. What he's trying to do is direct the, the disciples' attention. Pay attention to what the Messiah is saying to you right now. You know, that's not to take away from any of the others. Pay attention to what he's saying. Focus on that. We don't need three tabernacles. Is basically rebuffing Peter's idea. We'll build three tabernacles here. No, we're not going to be building any tabernacles. Listen to what the son has to say. Um, verse 5. And while he was still speaking, the voice out of the cloud said, This is my son and beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were very much afraid. Well, they heard the voice of the Heavenly Father. The last time people heard the voice of the Heavenly Father, they fell on their faces and they were full of fear and trembling at Mount Sinai. So they, had, they got to hear the voice of God. And Yeshua came to them, touched them, and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Yeshua himself alone. All right, so let's stop for a moment. As I mentioned to you before, Moses and Elijah are having a conversation with him, but it's not recorded for us as what were they talking about. Hmm. I'm curious, what do you think they talked about? 
I think what they were talking about was that Moses had made many prophecies, Elijah had prophesied about, along with all the prophets, about the Messiah to come. And I think they were now seeing Yeshua, seeing the Messiah, doing the work of the ministry he was doing. And they probably were asking some of the filler questions about, now, what, what are you going to do? I mean, we prophesied these, what are you going to do? How, how is this all going to work? I think that's the conversation. I think they were asking the Messiah, what are you going to do now? I mean, how, how does this all work out? Remember, if we go back in the previous lesson, Yeshua began to teach them he had to be arrested, had to be hauled in before the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, that he had to be tried, that they were going to kill him, and they were going to put him in a grave, and then he was going to be raised. I'm pretty certain that they were asking him questions about that. How, how, how is that going to work? And Yeshua probably was answering their questions. Because most people had had the idea, as soon as the Messiah shows up, boom, game's over, everything's done. You know, hey, it's the kingdom, you know, good guys get to be with the Lord, bad guys are gone. You know, it, it, they have a very simplistic idea about when the Messiah comes. That is not the case. The Messiah's redemption was a highly sophisticated plan put together by the Father, had to be dispatched by the Father, had to be rejected by the brethren, had to be raised up, you know, and and then there has to be a battle in heaven to get rid of Satan and his forces, and the Lord's going to come back, and it's going to be, you know, a great and glorious thing, but there's going to be this time of distress, this time of uh, tribulation. There's an incredible plan given in Scripture that deals with God's redemption and restoration of all things. And people who super simplify and say, oh, I don't want to hear about the plan, will just say, you know, Look, when you die, don't, don't you just go to heaven and sit on a cloud with a bunch of cubits and shoot arrows? No, you don't. That's not how it works. But people are looking for simple answers and, and instead of putting the energy in to learn what has the Lord taught. Sadly, we live in a day where a lot of people don't want to spend the energy to understand God's plan for the very days that we're living in. And so I think that Moses and Elijah were having a discussion about this great plan of God and how it was all going to work out, uh, you know, there. So moving forward now, verse 9, And as they were coming down from the mountain, Yeshua commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. Again, he's echoing, don't tell anybody, that I'm really the Messiah yet. We've still got to do certain things. And by the way, don't share this vision about me with Moses and, and Elijah until after the resurrection. Don't share that. And his disciples asked him, saying, What then do the scribes say about Elijah must come first? Now they're focusing on the prophecy, that great plan of restoration. Malachi says that Elijah will come before the, the day of the Lord. And he answered and he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Elijah, yes, he's part of the plan for us to come. I don't know if, if, if you're really aware of this, but at every Passover Seder, the Jewish people do this and Messianics do the same thing. 
Every Passover Seder, we set a special cup up at the Passover table called the Elijah's Cup. And we put some wine in it. And the idea is, at Elijah's place, is that we're hoping that Elijah will come back to meet that prophecy of showing up before uh, the Messiah comes, and that he will come to the Passover when the father is teaching his son about the God's work of redemption, that he'll come and restore the relationship between fathers and sons, that he'll be part of that process. And the way this actually works is that in the Passover Seder, there comes a point toward the end of the Seder where they will dispatch the, a child to go to the door, open the door, and yell out into the neighborhood calling for Elijah to come. Um, and every year, this is kind of funny, you know, every year it, it's kind of fun to uh, tell a kid, go to the front door, scream out into the neighborhood and say, call for Elijah. We've always joked around about people going for a walk that night and all of a sudden some kid shows up at the door and he starts screaming for Elijah, what, what they would think. Uh, and we tend to have a chuckle at it. But let me tell you something prophetically. There is a Passover coming in which that, when we do that Seder, we will know Elijah is in the world. We will know that he's come back. And I believe Elijah will be one of the two witnesses. And we'll see the two witnesses get started. We'll eat a Passover very shortly thereafter. And we'll know that Elijah is in the world. That will signal that that's the Passover that's the beginning of the greater Exodus. You begin the Exodus from a Passover. And we'll know that's the Passover that starts the greater Exodus. Uh, as Jeremiah spoke of. So he's talking about Elijah definitely still coming, but it's associated with my return and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did, not, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Verse 14, and when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. It's very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Yeshua answered and said, Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Yeshua rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Okay, another story of, of a miracle takes place. However, there's a little twist on this one. The disciples are now working with Yeshua. They're starting to do the work of ministry. And here comes this really hard case, this demonic-possessed boy who's doing harm to himself. And they can't seem to help him. You know, and the father appeals directly to Yeshua. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Yeshua privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible to you. 
Verse 21, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Verse 22, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, Yeshua said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Again, he's starting to reiterate and tell them, hey, this ministry I got going here very soon is going to be coming to a conclusion. This is what's going to be happening. And they, of course, weren't happy to hear that because that was, that was as you can imagine, very stressful. Um, as we come to the end of the age, in the days that we live, I will tell you that one of the things I've always said about prophecy is you really don't want to be a prophet. It's scary to know what the future has. It makes you more fearful and concerned because, it, you know, uh, even even the good stuff doesn't quite, you know, the, the fearful things are still very powerful. So when you know what's going to happen in the future, it, it makes you fearful. And it takes real strong faith to overcome that, you know, to continue to trust the Lord. So that's what he said. He began to tell them what it was happening, and they were very concerned about it. They became concerned as they began to understand what was going to be happening in the future. Verse 24 and when they had come to Capernaum, those who uh, collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, Yes. And when he had came into the house, Yeshua spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax, and from their sons or from their strangers? Well, if the guy who's collecting the tax has to get a certain amount of tax, is he going to get it from his friends and his sons? Heck no. Going to go get it from strangers, people he don't owe anything to, doesn't care about. And upon this saying, from strangers, Yeshua said to him, consequently, the sons are exempt, meaning the tax collector is not going to gather from the sons. He's never going to go ask them. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes out. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that, give it to them for you and me. Now, a stator is a coin that is equivalent to four drachma. And so he said, we'll pay for you, Peter, and pay for me. We'll pay the tax. And all you have to do is go out there. You know how to fish. Just throw out there a hook of the water. By the way, don't worry about the bait. Just throw a hook in the water. Bring the fish in. You're going to find this coin in his mouth. Now, you got to stop and ask yourself, what? Now, Peter has gone fishing a lot. He knows how you fish. What Yeshua has just told him to do is completely crazy. You want me to just throw a hook in the water and I'm going to catch one fish immediately? What are you, nuts? I, I just recently got back from a fishing trip and other people that like to go fishing and so forth. You throw those hooks in the water with bait on it and so forth. You wait, you wait, you wait. And sometimes, like in the last trip I went to, you didn't catch nothing. I got to tell you, when I was on that trip and we were out there fishing, I was thinking to myself about this story. I said, Lord, I'm not Peter, and I'm not looking for any coins in the fish's mouth. Any chance I could catch a fish, though? 
no, I didn't catch one. Um, let, me, let me make a rather interesting statement to all of you. You know how we talk about how the Lord's involved in our lives, you know, every step of the way, the Lord's a part of it and so forth. Did you know that every time you go fishing, the only reason why you catch a fish is because God said to give you a fish? He's that involved with your life. You know, when you go out and do a little recreation, if you go out hunting, you harvest some game, you do realize that the reason why you got that is because God said, hey, you know, let him have that elk. Let him catch that fish. That's how involved God is in your life. I mean, he proved it. Told Peter. You know, completely defied all the logic and intelligence that Peter had on the subject and says, look, go out there and just catch a fish. It'll have a coin in its mouth. Why in the world would there be a coin in a fish's mouth? Somebody must have dropped it down in there and it looked like a lure and I guess the fish swallowed it and couldn't get rid of it. Who, and how did the Lord set that up? Oh, let's have this guy fumble, drop his coin into the, the water and I'll have a fish come along and swallow it. So it'll be ready for the tax when Peter asked me about this. God is obviously very involved in what's going on in the universe and in this world, and nothing happens to us that he doesn't know about. I personally take great confidence in that. I know I can trust the Lord even when things happen that are discouraging and don't seem to go right and, and so forth. All right, chapter 18. And at that time the disciples came to Yeshua saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, and he set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me repeat to you something that I learned a long time ago. Um, what is the greatest miracle that you can ever witness? I'll tell you what it is. When you see another person accept the Lord and receive salvation, there is no greater miracle in this world. I, I know blind people seeing is great and being healed of cancer, that's great. But the truth of the matter is, according to the Lord, when a person enters the kingdom, it's the greatest miracle that takes place there at that point. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block took counsel. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter a life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. So here we have him talking about, again, you know, what shall a profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his soul? He's talking about if something offends you, it would be better, you know, if your hand is keeping you from going to heaven, it would be better to cut off your hand and remove it. Now, is he suggesting such things as cut off your hands and cut off your feet and pluck your eyes out and so forth? No, no, he's making a, a, a powerful comparison. He's trying to get us to value um, our relationship with God, that should be of greater value to us than anything else that's going on. Remember, go back to the original question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're asking these what we call relational questions. What, what, this compared to that, you know, which is greater kind of thing. Uh, and he's trying to explain to them that the greatest thing is for you to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And that it's not the issue is not, well, we've got this brother who belongs to the Lord, this brother belongs to the Lord. Which one is greater? No, he said, you, you're on the wrong track. What you need to be on the track of, this one isn't in the kingdom, and this one is in the kingdom, and this is the greater one. And he's trying to draw them down to be wise about the comparison. You need to be more concerned about people coming into the kingdom than what is the ranking for those that are in the kingdom. You need to be much more concerned about um, the work of redemption that God is doing with mankind. Verse 12, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you that he rejoices over it more than the other of the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these precious little ones perish. The, um, have you ever seen the statue, uh, they call it the good shepherd, you know, you show this shepherd and his staff and he's got a lamb up over his thing. And maybe you're not familiar with the story behind that, but let me give you the basic story of that figurine and what it means. That is a lamb uh, that was erring and keep running off. And the shepherd was having to leave the flock and go get him. And because he'd done it repeatedly, the shepherd now had to train him to be able to stay with the flock. And of course, the way you train the sheep is to get the sheep to listen to the voice of the shepherd. When you see a shepherd in his flock, all he has to do is speak to the sheep, and they will do what he says. He will say, come, they will come. He'll say, lay down, they'll lay down. They'll say, he says, drink, they'll drink. Eat now, eat, they'll eat. Um, the sheep are trained to follow the voice of the shepherd. This is a well-known thing. But you got this one lamb that keeps running off. He strays, just like this one. The one in the hundred went away, so he went over to catch him. And um, the story goes that when he gets him, because he's repeatedly run away, straight away, that he breaks a leg of the lamb, that he binds that leg up. 
and he puts the lamb up on his shoulders and he now carries the lamb until the lamb heals. And meanwhile, the lamb is very close to the shepherd and is constantly hearing the voice of the shepherd. As the shepherd does, the, he, the, the lamb always hears the voice of the shepherd. When he heals, he gets down. He can now recognize the voice of the shepherd, and now he's obedient. So the idea of the one that goes astray, if he does it repeatedly, the shepherd is going to pursue him, and he's going to train him special you know, for it. One of the things that we need to learn is, why don't you start learning how to follow the voice of the master, the shepherd, or else you're going to get your leg broke. And by the way, there's a lot of brethren who have gotten their legs broken by the Lord, and they don't quite understand why, but that's a typical thing that the shepherds know about very well. Um, this other part that he's talking about is the joy of finding that one that was lost, of you going searching and finding it. Verse 15, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private, and if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact will be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. That phrase that we just read to you, remember in the previous lesson in Matthew 16, when we talked about how Peter talked about the keys and whatsoever is bound in heaven is bound in the earth and so forth. And he was, he was talking about the authority of the Messiah. And so that's part of what we have uh, going on here as well. He's basically saying, God has given you the authority by being believers to be able to carry out the decisions that need to be made with dealing with conflicts with other brethren and being a pastor or a deacon or an elder doesn't give you any more skill in resolving the issue with trying to solve a conflict with a brother. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on the earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. If you can work cooperatively with other brethren, that is the most powerful spiritual thing going on in the assembly. If you can agree to pray on the same issue and you both approach and petition the Lord together, that is the power spiritually to get things done. Verse 20, for where two or three have gathered together my name, there I am in the midst of them. When we, a lot of times when we assemble, you know, and, and so forth, we say, hey, we got more than two or three of us, so the Lord's in the midst of us. That's true. He is. He hears everything. You know, where your heart's at, he knows what's going on. He's right there with us. Those that are spiritually wise will recognize his presence, and it will affect their behavior and speech and deed, you know, as to how they proceed. It's the same principle that the Torah teaches for establishing the truth. The Torah specifically says, except by the evidence of two or three, you shall not call anything, anything truth. 
So he's saying in the same principles, if there's two or three of you coming and petitioning me, I, the Lord, will respond. Those are spiritual laws, you know, that God has given to us. Verse 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Yeshua said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed ten thousand talents. But he said he did not have the means to repay. And his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, all that he had, and repayment to be made. And the slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience on me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, and saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him into the prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you entreated me. Should you not have also have mercy on your fellow slave, even as I've had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed over to him the tortures, until he should repay all that was owed. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So it begins with a question from Peter. How many times should we forgive? Seven times? Seven's a great biblical number, right? Seven, a lot of things spiritually. Should I forgive him seven times? By the way, that's a lot of times to forgive somebody. I hear most people complain, well, you know what, I, 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 can't, I can't forgive him. He, he's done this three times in a row. Oh, really? That's the number? That's the number that he's gone too far and you can't forgive? Peter was even asking the number seven times. But Yeshua said, no, seven times 70. 70 times seven. Now, what is really at play here? Well, one of the things that is at play is the following. It has to do with the nature of how we tend to forgive people. If we see a person that we think is good and we value them, it's easy to forgive them. But the person that we see that we have low value, you know, we kind of think they're kind of scummy, you know, we don't hold them in esteem at all, we don't forgive them as quickly as we do the other guy. That's what Yeshua is really going to be addressing here, because seven times 70 means the following. Proverbs says that a holy man sins seven times daily, but he gets back up. The nations, Gentiles, unbelievers, are referred to as the 70 nations. So he said, forgive whether he is a holy man and forgive whether he's just one of the Gentiles of the nations. You forgive them every time. And he tries to give a parable to say, look, 
how many of you have incredible debt to me, God, for all of your sins? We have an incredible debt, the one we can't even pay. It's like the guy who owed 10000 Can't possibly pay, okay? And so he says to him, he says, the master's willing to forgive you. Now, if I forgive you for all of your sins, and another man comes over and sins against you, why don't you forgive him? I tell you that you will be forgiven in the same way that you forgive. Now, it's a very hard concept for us to deal with because we're always trying to mix justice in with the forgiveness. Forgiveness is about mercy. And we're always trying to balance justice and mercy. And we try to train up our children with those things and we try to keep our relationships in those things. The fact of the matter is, this is a lesson about the mercy part. This isn't the lesson about the justice part, although he did kind of mention it when you're dealing with an erring brother and you try to correct the situation, and if he simply won't be corrected, you treat him like an unbeliever and you send him away. Here he's talking about how often do we forgive. And he's saying, I don't care if the guy's a holy man. I don't care if he's a Gentile. Forgive him. If he if he appeals for repentance and is willing to wants forgiveness, forgive him. Put it behind you and pick up the pieces and let's go forward. If you is uh, if there's unforgiveness in your heart, spiritually, I'm afraid for you. You will give an account to the Lord for that. I don't care what the guy did. You will give an account for your heart. And so he's saying here, as it says, So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So we need to have a short account with the Lord and forgive. All right, that's our lesson for this episode. And when we come back together for our study, we'll begin at chapter 19. Shalom, everyone. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for your participation in this ministry. We're soon approaching the fall holidays with trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. And as many of you know, Lion and Lamb Ministries hosts one of the largest Feast of Tabernacles here in Oklahoma. It'll be in October this year. And we want to invite you, I personally want to invite you to come join us in the camp and celebrate the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles and the Camp of the Righteous. Um, this has been an incredible year, 2020. Uh, many things have been happening. Many ominous things have been happening. It appears that what's going on is part of what the Messiah talked about, the beginning of sorrows, about the birth pangs that lead up to the Great Tribulation and the coming of the Lord. And Tabernacles has an incredible prophetic message to it that has to do with how God will be delivering his people in the Great Tribulation, the Greater Exodus, and by going and practicing at the Feast of Tabernacles, we learn how the Lord is going to be delivering us in those days. This is not a year that you should be thinking about missing the Feast of Tabernacles. You need to come. This year we have some excellent teachers coming. 
They're paying close attention to what's going on in the world today, and they have many words of encouragement for you when you come to the feast. So I encourage you, get your registration in to Lion and Lamb, to tabernaclesevent.com. Uh, Sign up for Sukkot, get your initial things in, get registered, get into the camp, and we will come and have a time, a feast of rejoicing before the Lord. And I want to encourage you personally this year, 2020, please, you need to come to camp this year and hear what the teachers have to share with you. So shalom to all of you. And as soon as you finish seeing this, go over there and get registered and join us for the Feast of Tabernacles.